Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. I am Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as always is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Carl and I have recently established on our pre-show discussion that we have a lot of things in common, but we also have a lot of things that are different from each other. So I hope that that uh, that dynamic is as thrilling for you all listeners as it is for us. We have a lot to talk about on this week's episode, so much so that we are going to challenge the Oscars for length of show. I think the Oscars <laughs> went to, what, about six hours and 45 minutes this year? So we're going yeah, to and if your DR, if your DVR says that this episode is X time, set it for two X just in case. Yeah, at, at least two X. So let's jump right in. We had a lot of although. Sorry, that, Jeff. Got to do this and just add to the running time. But your intro made it sound like we just met on the pre-show call and established our similarities and differences. So you know, we, we've we've met a few times. Just just for listeners to know. But at the same time, our pre-show call did go to an, an unusually long period. So I, I believe we know each other a lot better now. It's been... S- subscribers get the bonus recording of that pre-show conversation. So no, just kidding. There's no way to subscribe to this podcast. It's free. Yeah. So a ton of tennis in the last week. We have Indian Wells coming up. But there's a topic that both of us have been... We've had kind of going on in the ba- background for a while that hit some new peaks for especially for Carl in the last 24 hours or so. We, we've been chatting about Alex Dimonor for quite a while now, the young Australian uh, who has had a great season so far. Right, as for a while as you can about an 18-year-old. Yeah, exactly. It, 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 I think the first email between us happened maybe a month and a half ago or so, maybe two months uh, when he won his first matches in Brisbane this year. And he's a really exciting player. I think the Australians have had an eye on him for quite some time. He got a wild card at the Australian Open last year, 2017, and won a match. Uh, but this year has really been his coming out party. He's still ranked outside the top 100, but that really doesn't tell you how much he's accomplished. He had the run in Brisbane, and the match that really was the wake-up call for me was his Davis Cup match against Alexander Zverev just last month, which went to five sets. Incredibly close, really well-played match from both sides, especially from Damon Orr's side. And Jeff, can you think of a better match between two guys with basically the same first name or two women? Oh, that's, that's a tough one. I can't think of any other notable women on tour who are named Simona, so that would be tough. <laughs> so eliminate that. Yeah. Um, we can yeah, come back to that. But we'll, we'll a little both, trivia for you. Yeah, I think that's something some of our listeners would really excel at. So feel free to f- fire some suggestions at us on Twitter. I'll, I'll bet there are there are some good ones out there. So, Carl, since you started us uh, on this Damon Orb interest, why don't you kick us off here? We've seen a, a few of the same matches. When you see Alex Damon Orr play, what, what, ex- what excites you about it? What makes you think this is a, a future star in the making? Yeah, I, I think that's a good challenge to try to articulate it well. And I will try to resist the urge to just read out loud my emails, which have the benefit of my being able to read them over again before I say it, whereas this is just going to be ad-libbed. I think it starts with his tennis brain. I mean, he has a great tennis body in terms of fitness and, and balance and speed and endurance. And he also has great technique and a ton of options. But... I think what really set him apart for me, especially at his age, is his brain. And some of that is the kind of tennis brain that you often hear commentators really fixate on, which is composure and 
knowing when to fire himself up and when to conserve energy and when to fist pump and all that stuff that probably does matter on the margin. Certainly your mood during a match must affect the outcome in some way. But what I'm really talking about is point by point, shot by shot, and then also between games and sets, what decisions are you making and are you optimizing your approach to a match to to take the utmost benefit from the skills that you have, the options that you have, as controlled for the opponent you're facing and what they're giving you and what they're trying to take away from you. And neither of us, despite being probably two of the people in the world who have thought more about tennis and analytics and tactics, I don't think we'll ever really develop an algorithm to try to capture all of that. So some of this is going to necessarily seem anecdotal and fuzzy and maybe rife with confirmation bias, but it just seemed to me that he stood apart even without considering his age for most other pros that I see. And I think in general tactics are pretty good on the pro tour, so it's not like we're starting from a low bar. He just, it was sort of the part of my brain that unconsciously before every shot was like, I think you should do this, and then he did it, so maybe that's the utmost confirmation bias. But the results confirmed that maybe the bias was confirmable, that he was winning against guys who were much older, more experienced, often themselves tactically effective, and frustrating them greatly. Like you could tell that a combination maybe of his age and his lack of prior results at the tour level, and also his diminutive size and his maybe lack of some of the more traditional weapons of power and a huge serve, made them just underestimate him and then be really frustrated when he was continually beating them with patterns that they couldn't seem to solve or get out of. How was that? That's a that's a good start. I uh, agree with a lot of that. I, I do want to try to drill down in, in, into a few of the issues you brought up. First of which is you're trying to answer the question of how how we can recognize that a player is smart. And you, you mentioned a couple times that the strong tactics, that he frustrated players, he, he was making the right shots. He, you um, didn't say it in, this, in these words, but he didn't go away. Um, he stuck around in points for a long time. And whenever these discussions come up, it, it always seems to be with players who are, for some reason or other, outperforming what you'd expect from them physically. Like you don't talk about... I don't know, you don't talk about Joe Wilfred Sanga being smart. And this isn't to say he isn't, and he seems to me to be a bright enough guy. But that isn't the thing that pops into mind when you see somebody like Sanga play because their physical tools are so evident. But we tend to talk about... I will disagree with that, but I can do that after you're done. Go on. Okay. It seems to me that most of the people we talk about being smart are the ones who are don't have the physical tools often the way they make up for the physical tools is being very fast very consistent or both so sort of the anti-song I may be more like Jill Simone and it, again I'm not saying any of these people aren't smart I'm sure Simone is is, is quite bright as well um, but I th- I'm not sure that I'm not sure that smart is what we're capturing we're capturing a set of skills that are are less obvious less less one-dimensional, less tool, physical tool-based, and, and just a, more difficult to capture, more, more of like a, a, a more holistic and more based on, on speed, I guess. I'm not sure I'm articulating this very well, but Carl, I know you already have a, a response in mind for this. What, what's, what is your response to that? Sure. And, you know, first of all, we should remind listeners, as Jeff said, we do disagree on some of this stuff. And I think, these kinds of shows are always more interesting when the two hosts do instead of just agreeing with each other, which we also do sometimes do because sometimes we're, we're both right. 
so on Sangha, I mean, I already disagreed on him, but I, I also have some thoughts on Simone. Sangha, I think, does not get enough credit for being smart. So, so maybe, maybe this is not that inconsistent with, with what you were saying, but I certainly, when I watch him, am impressed by his decision on a few things. One, a big one is where he serves. I remember still a finding you, you published on the Tennis Abstract blog, which everyone should check out, not just for this post, but for others. And it was that he was so he was better serving to the ad court than the deuce court to an extent that you usually just see with lefties and he is right-handed. And I don't remember the extent to which you dug into the potential reasons and, and the sort of sub-categories of types of serve, but it strikes me that a server having success, and he's not the tallest guy, he has a serve that is much better than his height would suggest, a serve is a lot like a pitcher, like choosing when to use which stuff and how to mix it up and how to keep players guessing while also trying to usually go with your strongest going against their weakest tools. And I think he does all of that. And the fact that he's been able to master the ad court serve means that it, he has an edge on break points and game points, which almost always happen in the ad court. And then in terms of his game, I think when someone like him, when someone has a huge imbalance between the two sides of their ground strokes, when they have a much better forehand than backhand, that's usually the imbalance. Although Benoit Paire is a French player who's more on the other side, and maybe Simone too. But Sangha's forehand is one of the best in the world, maybe ever. And his backhand is probably one of the worst in the top 100. And when that's the case, I think it can take a lot of smarts to be able to manage that and still be a regular top 10 player. So in his case, I've often marveled when watching him at... First of all, how many forehands he's able to get and then often coax guys to go into his forehand corner because he's gotten the forehands by camping out in the backhand corner. Maybe sort of being able to calibrate it so either they miss or they give him enough time to hit a cross-court forehand on the run, which he does really well, or down the line. And then also sort of calibrating his aggressiveness. Like if you worry that if they eventually find your backhand, you're now really likely to lose the point, then the longer the rally, the more likely that is to happen. So it makes sense to go for broke early. And it also might make sense if they do find your backhand to go for broke on that very first one, which is something other guys with much weaker backhands sometimes do, like Milos Raonic and Jack Sock, by going down the line almost right away if the backhand is found. Okay. Uh, and then I, sorry, Let one, me jump sorry. In your okay, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I, I definitely take all your points, and, and I agree, especially with some of the examples you give that, that Sangha. It, plays very smart and I, I think I'm referring more to the general perception like you will rarely hear commentators marvel at how smart Sangha is and the way that they'll marvel about that with a, a, a different style of player so Jeff you know I, what I think the difference is between us here is that I think you said you often think and you meant the general you and I took it a little too personally so sorry for the uh, misunderstanding okay no I should I'll just switch to Norwegian which doesn't have the same ambiguity <laughs> uh, that'll be good especially for those of you, if anybody knows Norwegian, you'll hear how bad it is. Um, let, let's uh, let's take a slightly different tack here. I, I think we could look at almost any player, up to and including John Isner, and say, uh, this guy has nothing in common with, say, Alex Di Um And yet he's smart. Is smart. I mean, we've talked about this before, Carl. I think we disagreed about this, and you largely convinced me that I mean, a lot of what Isner does is, is extremely intelligent and, and well thought through. Tennis-wise. Uh, yep, technically, tactically very sound. Um, so I think you could make that argument about a lot of players. Let and me, I would about Simone, but I'll spare our listeners. Go on. 
Yeah, I would I would definitely make that argument about Simone too. And Simone's a, I think of a very smart guy both on and off the court. Yep. Um, despite his occasional vocal misstep, let's say. But can you think of any players who who fit the mold of of a let's say a pest like really fast counter puncher not a lot of weapons can you think of anybody in that category who you wouldn't think of as tactically really strong yeah that's a great question i think i will get out of the trap of that question and it's somewhat cheating because we kind of talked about this by email earlier by saying no, and partly that's because there's so many shots and so many decisions they make that uh, there's just a large sample to kind of admire their tactics, and that because we don't often we, we're often sort of marveling at the big ace and the big forehand that we don't think about all the tactical decisions that led up to it. We just marvel at sort of the power and the skill that we, our minds maybe just focus more on. Uh, on the tactics when we don't see all those other things distracting us. Uh, and relatedly, I think with Demonor, something I said right at the beginning is he's, he has so many tools, and that's another way that a player can kind of flaunt their smarts because you know that there are a lot of options they have. And sometimes people say if you have a lot of options, it is harder to make the decision, and that might be true, but it, it at least is much more ostentatious. I will say just one other thing on this point, which maybe is, is what you were driving at, which is just as... You know, we would say, like, it's probably true that everyone has a really good serve in the top 100, even if some are not one of the 100 best serves in the world, and that we should appreciate that more. Some of that is selection bias. Like, you just need to have an effective serve to stay in the top 100. My guess is almost everyone in the top 100 has tactical smarts that are really, really strong, and some are just showier than others because of just the selection bias of it. And I think that especially applies to the guys you're describing who are chasing everything down, that if you don't have weapons and all you have is speed as a weapon and you're not tactically smart, then you just can't be in the top 100. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm, I'm, I probably would have ended up saying the same thing over the course of the next 10 minutes as we dive a little deeper into this. Um, one thing that's that's occurring to me now, I had imagined this as being sort of our overarching text, tactics discussion, which is obviously a, a big bite to try to chew. Um, one of the issues is what exactly tactics means. And this is one of those times where as analytics guys, we tend to like to get to the bottom of an issue and build it back up from, from the very basics. And I think if there are any tennis coaches out there listening like they're probably thinking we're just we're just groping around in the dark we don't know what we're doing because i think if you are a tennis coach then you're you know what tactics means you don't have to think about it i mean it's it's an it's just an established category but to me it's not so clear uh we have this entire range of things from like you talking about sangha and where he serves in the ad court we have a very simple decision like you're serving in the ad court against opponent X, which direction do you go? I mean, these are things you can count, you can you can look at his results in the ad court, you can look at his results with wide serves, you can look at his results with wide serves on break point, you can break them down by opponent. These are very easy things to study, it's a very easy decision to isolate, you can tell what he's doing, when he's doing it. But then, that that falls into the category of tactics, but at the other extreme, you have these whole sequences of shots that you'd also call a tactic, like not just approaching in a certain direction or trying to coax a, a passing shot on one side, just like 
building a point, like creating space, something that might be a four-shot sequence or e even longer that you'd also put in the same category. And maybe part of the problem here with, with trying to pin down who's tactically strong or how they, how they are smart or not so smart is that it's not entirely clear what we're talking about. I mean, just because we refer to all these things with the same word doesn't mean that from the point of view of tennis analysis, they should really be the same thing. Do you think that's part of our issue here, Carl? I think so. I mean, I think I'm pretty clear on what I mean by tactics, but I agree that probably so many things get grouped into it and that we probably do need... I mean, this is almost like talking about talking about tactics, what we're doing now, because I could imagine just an entire podcast that's only about tactics every week and never runs out of things to talk about. And I think having like a taxonomy of, of all the phrases and what we mean about them, I mean, I think just agreeing on terms is so much, so often so much a part of the problem in these kinds of conversations and such a hard thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, I think, a big part of my issue is that we're, if I were to say something like, Tactic, tactics are really tough to evaluate with analytics. I mean, that, that sounds like a clear sentence, but if you actually try to pin down what it means, it can, it, in some instances it's completely false, and in some instances it's overwhelmingly true. So something's got to give. I mean, not every word has to have a crystal clear meaning all the time, but I think tactics is serving too many purposes. At least the, the, when I think about a topic like this, I'm, when we're talking about a certain player being tactically strong or tactically weak, I'm instantly thinking, okay, what is it that we can test? Is it testable? If it is testable, how are we going to test it? What data are we going to use? What questions are we going to ask? And to me, tactics breaks down into so many, probably hundreds of questions, some of which are easily answerable with the data we have, some of which are impossible to answer with any data that's out there now. A lot of things fall in between. So it's it, it's tough, really, to, to determine in just what we're dealing with here when we're talking about tactics. And like you say, right now we're talking about talking about it, which is maybe not the most compelling podcast topic we could dream up. Um, so no, but I think I think it's important for the reasons we've said, um, and yeah, I also just think that with talking about tactics, that you you made a a very revealing point about how you think, and I think how I think instinctively, which is what exactly do we mean in a measurable way, and then how do we go about measuring it? Can we even measure it? And and I think that's that's right, and it's a good instinct, but also that it doesn't necessarily mean that if it turns out that some of what we mean isn't measurable, that it's not real, because this does really feel like some of the hardest stuff to measure for a host of reasons that we can get into if, if we're ready to move to a, to a related meta topic. Yeah, I, and, and I, I, I agree that the issue is just just because you can't measure it doesn't mean it's not real. But at the at the same time, to, to use a, uh, an analogy from baseball, one of the, one of the ongoing research topics for decades now has has been measuring clutch, and of course that that comes up in tennis as well. And Bill James had a famous article, I think it's called "Measuring the Fog" or something like that, where where he basically made that point: just because you can't measure it doesn't mean it's not there. And that's absolutely true in, in baseball and tennis and millions of other things. But at the same time, if you can't measure it in something where measurable results are what matters, then 
you have to ask how much of it is really there. Like in the case of clutch in baseball, like people have measured it and found a little bit, and it may be that there only is a little bit. It, 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 what I'm thinking of uh, in making that analogy is when we talk about very specific tactics that don't come up that often. Like, if, for instance, it, Carl, you haven't brought this up yet, but I know you're, you're going to if I don't first. One of the things we've been discussing in preparation for this podcast is a, a really interesting website uh, called, tact, it is tacticaltennis.com, right? Am I right about that, Carl? I think so, and I will check while you continue. Okay, so there's a tennis coach who's done really, really Yes, tacticaltennis.com. Tacticaltennis.com. So if we're going to plug it, we might as well plug it correctly. So uh, the guy who writes that site. It's two guys, by the way. Two guys, the, the two guys who write this site, sorry, um, do some really deep dives into specific players, specific approaches, tactics, all that stuff, complete with, with pictures and diagrams. And it, it, it's really interesting. And it, I, I've only really dug into this one article, and I'm, I'm going to look into it more. And there's not a lot there that's testable, but the, there's one remark I remember from this, this recent article he wrote about Alex de Menor. Is is that he rarely will will hit three backhands in a rally, but when he does, he usually loses. And it, I'm not I'm not trying to attack the uh, tactical tennis on this count at all because it, it's probably true. And this is only a minor point. It doesn't it, it doesn't have very much to do with their overall message in in the blog post about Alex. But when I hear that, I'm thinking, okay, three backhands in a point that means minimum six shot rally and there really aren't that many six-shot rallies. And if you break down six-shot rallies by how many are going to have three backhands from the same guy, we're down to a minuscule percentage of points. I mean, I, I, I guess I could look it up. I don't know how small the percentage is, but we're talking about a really small percentage. So for one, my first question is, how on earth do you know that? I mean, how many matches do you have to watch and tally results from to actually know that three backhands in a row is, or three backhands in a single point is a death knell to a point. And for another thing, even if it is true, does it really matter? Does it come up enough? And even if it does, how does that compare to other players? I mean, it seems like that would probably be true for most guys. If you're playing on what is for most players your weaker wing, then that having to hit that shot three times probably is a bad thing. You're either in bad position or you're just making bad decisions, any number of things. It, it seems like it's going to be the case, even if it happens enough that it matters. So, Yeah, ju- and sorry, just to amplify, yeah. and maybe this is just restating what you just said, but the way I think about it is in it, the sample size is a huge issue, and you could get, with a small enough sample, a real skew, for instance, where more of these points happen on the other player's service, point, service points than on yours, in which case you're just less likely to win those points anyway. And that could happen by random chance, or it could happen, as you just said, because the three, it's a correlation causation uh, confusion that the points on which you're hitting three backhands or three backhands in a row are the ones on which your opponent is in control. And the, usually a good signal of whether the opponent is, is in control is if you're having to hit backhands, because for most players, including Demonar, who are more dangerous on their forehand side, when the opponent gets to choose how the point is played, it's going to be played on your backhand side. And when the opponent's in control, you usually lose the point. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And, and sorry, just to, just to generalize slightly back to a point you made before, I think is very related here. Some of this means as you dig in really deep, the insights are going to be more questionable and also less important to the overall results of a player just because those situations will happen so rarely. And also, 
there's the question of, well, if you can't actually measure what you mean, then how do you get to a uniform understanding of what is and isn't good tactics? And if you can't, maybe there is some truth out there, but maybe in a practical sense, it's just not that useful to talk about it because we will never really come to a shared truth. On the other hand, I will just say one thing in defense of that sort of three backhands approach, which is I read it more as like a, this is a very specific example of a more general point we're making about his backhand. This is illustrative of something about patterns that are bad for him. And sometimes it might not be three backhands. Sometimes it might be just one that he's forced to hit under a lot of duress. Sometimes it's really about what happened in the third backhand, which could happen in the first with a different sequence of shots before it. So I, I did take it to be somewhat metaphorical. That might be too gener- generous of a reading of a site I've just discovered. And for anyone who follows me on Twitter knows, I'm immediately a very big fan of, despite all the the questions we're raising about the analysis. Yeah, and, and that's why I emphasized from the beginning that, uh, yeah, I don't mean to attack or pick on the whole post just because of one thing that's testable that I don't think makes the point they're trying to make. But at the same time, like I said a little bit before that, when I'm reading something about tactics, I am just thinking, almost after every sentence I'm thinking, is this testable? Is this testable? Can I really see if this is true? Can I prove it? Can I disprove it? And this is an issue I have with, with other writers as well, that you often will read through an entire article without finding anything clear enough to you know write some code and test it, even if the data is out there. So that when you find Yeah, I mean, the scientific term is like, is it refutable? Meaning like, if you can't test whether, if you can't prove, if you can't test whether it's not true, then it's really hard to believe it's definitely true. Yep. And when you finally do get down to some, even if it is just a a, a note in passing, like the three backhands thing, if that's the first thing you come to in, you know, 700 words that is refutable and it, and you can refute it, then all of a sudden you wonder about all that other stuff. Like it, it, it's easy to say things that feel very right when you're not being that specific. And I, again, I, I'm painting with too broad a brush here because some some tactical analysis is, is really sound and a lot of it's very interesting, but you, you do wonder. Uh, so just to, to change gears a little bit, Carl, you, one of the things you, you touched on in your tweet storms about tactical tennis in the last 24 hours or so. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I, I'm a little concerned I just used tweet storm in a sentence without even pausing for some air quotes. But uh, you mentioned that you played the best tennis of your life in the, the morning after <laughs> reading all this stuff. And obviously, tennis by Carl Bialik is a little different than tennis by <laughs> Alex Damonor. There is video up on tennisabstract.com, which Jeff can link to in the show notes if you want to you know, lose some of your, your vision and your will to live. Yeah, but as, as Carl has noted, his game has improved since then, some of it in the last 24 hours. So <laughs> could could be different now. But, I, but I'm curious. It, it, it's easier to, to understand this stuff if you, if you do it yourself. I mean, you, you follow through on these patterns. You, you test certain things firsthand. Um, can you give us an idea of what you learned from reading so much about professional tactics that actually translated into more success in your own game? That is a great question and one that I did not particularly think about deeply before writing that tweet, mainly because uh, I had to run out of the house very soon after finishing that match, which I didn't want to end because I was enjoying playing so well 
and thinking so clearly so much that I just didn't want to stop. And then I realized it was five o'clock and I hadn't eaten anything all day. And, you know, that's what happens when you binge on consuming material about tactics and then try to carry it out. Or at least that's what happens when I do. That's probably not one I should put in the generalized third person for our more conventional listeners. So I, I will try to articulate what I think was going on. And I think it was a few things. One is just I found in general that whenever I'm consuming a lot of either direct tennis in terms of watching professional tennis live or on TV or smart discussion of tennis, it just generally seems to pay off in my game. And I think it's often at a pretty unconscious or completely unconscious level. Like I just have more data from which to pattern match and anticipate and just kind of unconsciously know that is not a good pattern. Of course, a lot of this is dependent on to what extent I can really apply professional tennis to my own game. And I think the answer is quite a bit, and that's not at all a statement on my own overconfidence or hubris about my game, but just that I think it's one of the beauties of the sport that as long as all the different skills scale at about the same rate, which is a pretty big if from my level to the professional level, in other words, if my serve is 5% the quality on whatever unit you want to use of Federer's and my backhand is 5% the quality of his, which feels roughly right, you can weigh in because you've played me many times and usually won, then it's possible that the way I think of those shots in combination and using them, assuming my opponent is at about my same level, will be able to at least be, be instructed by what he does and what he does well. So I think that that's part of it. I think more specifically, one one of the funny things is I, I enjoyed the tactical talk so much at Tactical Tennis, but some of it was also quite technical, and it's funny how similar those words sound, yet how different they are in terms of what we mean. At least what I mean by technical is really more just like the biomechanics, the stroke production, the movement, you know, what your body is doing to try to carry out what your mind wants it to do. And one of the points it kept making was that for certain grips, that's always good to meet the ball out in front. And for certain grips, it's especially good and it needs to be especially far out in front. This was in an article comparing four of the best one-handed backhands in the ATP. I have a terrible one-handed backhand, but it really does do better when I meet the ball out in front. So even just a simple reminder, oh, yeah, that's a good thing to do, was enormously helpful. Um, One other, I guess two other quick points. One, it was quite windy. And I think the wind is a great way to really make the the match more tactical because there's so many more factors to take into account and those factors are ever changing. So it probably just brought tactics to the fore at a time I was I was thinking a lot about tactics. And then finally, it also, I think, just made me very calm in a very inner game of tennis way. That's a classic book that if I could risk uh, butchering it by summing it up really quickly, says that you should concentrate on what you want your body to do on the tennis court and probably in general and other physical pursuits in life, not on how it's going to do it. And then your body will take care of the rest. And I think I was feeling some of that on the physical side and some of that on the mental side that I just felt so calm and focused and clear minded that I almost didn't have to think through decisions very consciously. And the right decision was just flowing from me in a way it doesn't normally do, at least to that extent. So that was the sort of euphoria, the high that I was floating on on the court. And it, it, it translated, by the way, into just a great mood. Like my opponents were playing really well, too, in my opinion. And I was just stopping often after really exciting rallies to marvel at how good a point we all just played. I say we all because there were three of us for much of the match. So we were doing rotating Canadian. 
And they kept looking at me funny, like, yeah, I guess that was good, but mostly I'm focused on how I ended up losing the point. I'm like, yeah, but come on, like, think of the shot she hit, which made you hit that shot, which made me hit that shot. Anyway, so it was it was quite a high I was I was in. Well, side note, if, if Carl ever does start a band, I have it on good authority, the band name will be The Rotating Canadians. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Probably already I, taken, though, because every band name is. That is true. Uh, one thing I always wonder about when we're making these comparisons between our own play and the, the pros is, like you point out, there's a, a, an ocean of difference between how we play and how, say, Federer plays or anybody in the top hundreds, whatever, wherever you want to draw the line. Ocean makes me uh, think you think it's more than 95% of a gap, which is fair enough. It really depends on the unit. By speed, have, it's, it's not that big a gap, but by other things it is. Yeah, it, I have no idea how to measure that. But yeah, yeah in, in, uh, Ocean would cover 95% or 60% or 99.9%. I don't know. But uh, the point is it's huge. And one, one characteristic of that gap is if you're on the amateur side of that, then... If you if, if you learn something, whether it's tactical, tactical or technical or mental or whatever, there there's a lot of room for improvement, and you can get a, a, a very straightforward, often basic tip, and translate that into uh, a lot of immediate success. It doesn't always work, but it, it it can give you a big boost, even just like tweaking your service motion a little bit, or like you point out, hitting a bit a little bit more in front. You can go from let's just say five percent of Federer to eight percent of Federer. Um, but I always wonder is it, it, I think it's, it's too easy because most tennis fans are tennis players and maybe most is, is a stretch, but a lot of tennis fans are, are regular tennis players or were decent tennis players as kids. So we all know what that's like to get a tip from a coach and go out there and employ it and, and think, wow, that really worked. And then take the, as a lesson from that, that when pros are talking to their coaches that the same thing is happening that you know darren cahill says simona go out there and use this tactic against sharapova and then there's going to be this boost and i wonder whether whether it really works that way because obviously there's not as much room for them to improve i mean just at the at the, the simplest level their their shots are already pretty close to perfect their tactics like you mentioned uh, maybe 20 minutes ago are already among the the best tactics in the in in the world I mean, you, you can't be a top 100 player without having a very good tactical mind um so so do you think that the, the sort of things we're talking about if you were to share them with with a with a pro like they would benefit that pro or do they just already know this stuff yeah, that's a great question. I think really is starting to get to the crux of the talking about tactics conversation. And I think, as with most of my answers, it's it's on the one hand, on the other hand, to some extent. But I think the, the TLDR, to sound very internet-y, is that in general, it is, it is going to be worth it on balance for most pros. And my, my reasoning on this is, first of all, we said that pretty much every pro has to be smart to to get to that level and I think we both probably agree on that in general but I think there are always exceptions so there are some guys for whom just flat out some really basic points could probably help like we can think of and I'm saying guys and I shouldn't because I just mean players generally uh, people who use the drop shot a little too much or are kind of bullheaded about approaching the net even when they're doing so in patterns or against opponents or against certain shots of opponents that are just likely to 
uh, unlikely to to bail them out in the point. Uh, unlikely to basically let them win the point at the net is what I'm trying to say. So, yeah, I think there are just some players who flat out need a lot of tactical help. Otherwise, I think that while players probably have a great intuitive sense of most of the things they should be doing, I can think of enough examples where players did kind of have the risk calibration wrong in general on big points or went to a certain tactic a little too much that even though they're probably pretty close to optimal, the difference between pretty close and very close could be the difference between you've done some posts trying to quantify these things like not so much in tactics but in let's say quality of smash and the smash is just not that common a shot but it could still make a difference of maybe more than a point per thousand and what i think was really powerful in that post is that you then try to extend that measure which sounds like basically nothing to the question of well how much does that really translate into in terms of rankings and what could that mean for I don't remember if you extend it to prize money, but I think it's implied by rankings. And because the differences among these players near the top is so small, every little bit helps. Like, let's say you can find five things to give an average player that are, would each, would on average, because probably some of them will backfire and some of them will actually pay off more than you expect. But let's say on average, they win them one more point in a thousand. They can win five more points in a thousand. So that could be a shift from, let's say, winning 50% of their points to winning 50.5%, if I'm doing the math right. Yep. And, you know, that's a difference between having a one-loss record of five, or winning percentage of 500 and probably having a winning percentage of 520, 530, maybe higher. I don't know. You, yeah, it's yeah. not going to be 50.5%. It's definitely going to be higher than that. And then once you have a winning percentage that much higher, you start getting a lot more ranking points, you get better seeding, you get entry to better tournaments. These things are a virtuous cycle or yes, circle. Yes, it, it, it is. Um, and, and even if you don't have that cycle kick in, like you point out, a very small difference in on-court results can have a, an outsized difference in ranking. And that's, like you say, it correlates with prize money, all the stuff that matters in the end to tennis players. And, and, and you're right to point out that... It, Sure, you're not. You're never going to give a pro a, a tactical tip or a technical. I guess it's possible a technical tip, but you're never going to give them a tip that's going to have the same uh, potential for an enormous impact that giving a good tip to you or I would as as amateurs. But you're right that it doesn't take as much to to actually make a difference, and that's essentially what the conventional wisdom says on that too, because coaches are paid lots of money. The best coaches are paid really lots of money by top players. So unless people are completely wasting their money on those coaches or just paying glorified hitting partners, then that's what players seem to think, that it's worth having that voice there to tell them this stuff that either they've forgotten or uh, or they just never knew or it's just, it just come, comes up with the overall de development of the sport over time. So the million-dollar question then, and that's usually a metaphor, but in this case it might actually be literal, is what information would actually do, could could we create? And I, I, it doesn't have to be we, as in analysts like me or podcasters like Carl or you know tacticians like the people behind TacticalTennis.com. But you brought up earlier the the point, Carl, that it's it's not clear how much of this is. Um, is predictive. I don't think you used that word, but it it was implied in in what we could actually study in in all this stuff. So, 
the question always is when you're reading about a tactic that worked or didn't work is it's very easy to look at a point and say this is what went wrong this is what happened so you're describing the past so you can say this is what player x did and usually if you see a pattern you can go so far as to say this is what player x does this is this is his habit that he's likely to stick with but going from there to this is what player x will do or this is what player x should do that's a huge huge leap and i think in order to make predictions like that with any kind of analytical soundness anyway you need to have the data and the question then is the million dollar question i'm talking about is if you have a player's ear and let's say you have all the data that exists now what information do you give them to make them tactically sounder or what information do you give them to prepare them better for the tactics they're going to see from their opponent that day i mean i've had this conversation with a lot of people because having a lot of data it piques a lot of people's interest in what you could do with it but i don't think i have a good answer for it yet so i'm, I'm maybe setting you up for failure here carl what do, you <laughs> do you have any ideas what the answer to that question is like what 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 should players be seeing before they go out to a match or what do you think players would want to see that you could derive from the data that's out there yeah, that's that's a great question, uh, and a few sort of preliminary things just to mention quickly before diving right in, which is, first of all, I, I made a sort of crack about, uh, sort of crack, sort of not, that you could have just an entire podcast that had many, many episodes just about tennis tactics, and that was meant to be sort of a nod to Tactical Tennis actually does have a podcast, and this morning, just before the match, actually, I was listening to their latest episode, which you would think, despite the name of the show, is just like every episode about tactics. But this was, I think it turned out their latest episode just a couple of weeks ago was very much targeted at players like Jeff and me and probably a lot of our listeners, amateurs. And it was like, here's some here's some sort of tactical tips on the on the cheap. My favorite of which was the cheapest, which was if you've just played someone, my modification is someone who you don't expect to play again, but who you think is probably pretty smart. Just ask them to tell you what your game is, like describe it to you, because it's really hard for people to see their own game. And they have just spent the last however long you've been playing basically trying to study your game as quickly and efficiently and brutally objectively as possible in order to dismantle it. So they will know you better than you know yourself, at least in some aspects. And I thought that was great advice that I'm probably going to start trying to follow, although most of my partners are regular partners, which makes the conversation more awkward. Um, so well, also one of your one of your partners is uh, let's who, yeah let's not yeah okay <laughs> let's just say that I have I have non tennis relationships with many of my partners I mean Jeff and I play and are also very good friends so or you can you can edit that if you disagree with that characteristic of our friendship but no I, uh, I just want <laughs> I just want our listeners to know that one of your regular partners is someone who when asked about your game usually makes some combination of angry sounds and snickers. Oh, that's many of my opponents. Sorry, I I thought you were going to describe one in particular. But to me, actually, that is a really, you know, that's like the tweet length version. Yeah, my game is really annoying. It's useful to know that. Like some people would be sad to hear it. But to me, the point of tennis is to make your opponent do things they don't want to. Or in my case, sometimes see things that aesthetically offend them. And yeah, that that gets me a long way, a lot, a lot longer way than my terrible technique. No offense to the coaches who tried their best. Um, so anyway, on this on this episode, I think they were making the point that that we are driving at, and that maybe has helped persuade me of this argument, which is that actually some pros could also 
really use the help. And that does seem surprising on first glance, especially when you consider the primary example they gave is the most successful men's player of all time, at least at the slams, Roger Federer, 20-time major champ. They made the point that if you listen to him talk about the evolution of his backhand, and we've talked about that on the show, and Jeff has done some great posts quantifying it on his blog and elsewhere, including The Economist, it genuinely has gotten better. And when, when you hear him out on why, it's, it's, it's kind of as simple as, oh, maybe I really can just swing freely more often and be more aggressive, and maybe that means I'll miss more, but overall it'll mean I win more matches. I mean, he had to change the racket, which itself is sort of somewhere between tactic and technique and I don't know what, probably having a sponsor who's a racket maker and is willing to you know, do anything they can to make you more successful while holding their product as the tool of your success. But, you know, it did kind of come down to he probably didn't, he didn't really change his technique that much. I'm not a technique expert, so take this with even more grain of salt than most things I say that sound authoritative. But I, I was persuaded that based on the things I've heard him say and, and the way it was described on this Tactical Tennis podcast episode, it was just a matter of like being reminded that you have this great shot and that you're always going to miss more when you're more aggressive. But it doesn't mean it's not worth it and that he knows that better than anyone because he's an aggressive serve and forehand and he misses sometimes and that doesn't mean that it hasn't been on balance worth it. So yeah, I think that that was a compelling example to me. I'll tell you also an example I was more personally exposed to and is, that is one of my favorite examples where at the 2015 Wimbledon, I think, but we can check this, that was when Dustin Brown upset Rafael Nadal. And he was working at the time with a coach named Craig O'Shaughnessy, who's very stats-minded and writes a lot for various websites about stats and has worked on tactics with many players. And Jeff and I don't always agree with him, but I still think he gives a lot of good advice. And I certainly found his description to me in the Wimbledon media dining room of sort of the tactical advice he gave Brown when facing Nadal to be pretty compelling. And my, my favorite part of the conversation was when he said, we gave Brown one very simple, we were trying to give him like you'd want to give all players, not any of the stats behind these recommendations, but just a few simple actionable items because they already have so many other things that they need to be focusing on, especially the point at hand expecting them to re recall a lot of different advice that may make them play differently than their norm is just not realistic and probably counterproductive. So one of the very simple points he made from watching Rafa playing similar players and playing Brown himself is if you just slide a foot to the left in the ad court and when, when Rafa is serving to you, that will take away the wide serve or make it much less effective and he won't be able to punish you by enough down the tee for it to be a bad bad move. It's worth it overall. And you know, I didn't I didn't study deeply the the data underlying it, but it seems like generally good advice given the relative strengths of Rafa's different serves into the ad court. And even though Brown started really well, and I think won either both of the first two sets or one of the first two sets, which is a great result against you know one of the greatest players of all time and a multiple-time Wimbledon champ. Craig, who was watching the match live, was noticing that Brown had not taken his advice there. And then at some stage, and that it was hurting him by Craig's telling and by my recollection, but your charting may differ. Anyway, uh, then Dustin adjusted. And after the match, Craig caught up with him, of course, congratulated him, talked through all the different tactical adjustments, and then said, mate, because Craig's Australian, something like, mate, what happened with the, with the move to the left? And Dustin said something like, 
I just had so much else on my mind. I just kind of forgot until a couple of sets in and then remembered and then did it. And, you know, it can really come down to that. And that is by no means a knock on Dustin Brown's tennis smarts. I think he has, in addition to just one of the most magical and wonderful games I've ever seen, a ton of tennis intellect in terms of rattling opponents. Um, Speaking of, sorry if this is, cut me off if I'm going too long. I just have a couple more quick things to say. Yeah, go, go for it. So I just mentioned rattling opponents and Brown like Gael Monfils, will often do something very unconventional on the court that probably from sort of a conventional tactical approach, you would say is the wrong move. But I think that often really works to unsettle opponents. I I described before how unsettling my game can be for opponents. And I think there's a lot of virtue in that because players, when they're comfortable, are really hard to beat and really hard to ever make miss. And if you can give them something they're not used to seeing, it might win you that point and even if it doesn't it might win you later points because they are now out of their sort of comfortable deep focus unconscious thinking pattern matching and thinking consciously oh my god what's he going to throw at me now and not only does that mean that i will lose the match because of this thing he's throwing at me but will i look stupid and be in a million tweets with highlights of me screwing up against what looks like a bush league tactic just twice in the last few days i'm bringing this up because i thought it was really striking that twice in the last few days Players who have, you know, been in the top 20 or top 10 in the WTA and ATP both tried really unconventional shots that almost looked like jokes, but I think had some virtue. Pablo Cuevas hit, he, he had what looked like a bounce smash, and instead he let the ball bounce lower and hit a tweener drop shot, which was terrible, and Fonini came forward and dispatched it for a winner, and Cuevas was now two points from losing the match in a blowout, and Cuevas went ahead to win the next six points. That is a very small sample size. There's confirmation bias risk and so on. But given what I know of Fonini and just what I know of tennis, it would not surprise me at all if that took Fonini out of his comfort zone and made him confused and think for a bit, like, is this guy just going to tank the last two points? And then Irani, who has one of the weakest serves in WTA, had match point, was running away with her match, and hit a basically an underhand drop shot serve and I wasn't watching the match live, but from what I saw, it was partially a result of losing confidence in her serve. But also, what a great way with a weak serve to make your opponent think twice and maybe also move forward a step. And then your weak serve becomes less weak because they have to guard against this this crazy tactic that no one ever tries. So that that certainly seems like an example. The last thing I'll say is you mentioned that it's not that useful to describe the past because the future will not be that will not likely match it. And so if you've just mastered what you should have done in the past, that won't matter that much tomorrow. I think the really important exception is players who often face themselves, face each other, excuse me, not themselves, although in the case of Marian Djokovic, maybe themselves, who face each other often and often in really big matches and the most important matches for the sport generally. So these are important exceptions that the more you can understand about that opponent, the, the more it will matter in semifinals and finals that end up writing the size of your retirement account and the size of your entry in the history books. And, you know, I just think that it's, it takes away so many of the variables if you are learning from what you did against the exact same opponent. Well, I think, Carl, that was a, a very long and, and very interesting non-answer to my question. I'll let, <laughs> I I'll may let have misunderstood the question, in which case it's amazing that you didn't cut me off to correct me. And thank you for that. I'll, I'll let you off the hook because it, I'm not sure there's a good answer to it. And, and I, I've Can you rephrase it? No, I think if I did that, then we'd, we'd go down another... How about if I promise not to answer? I just, <laughs> I'm just curious what I, what I misunderstood. Well, what, 
what I want to know is, is I guess you gave me a couple examples in the case of Craig O'Shaughnessy and Dustin Brown, but but if we are thinking, what, how can we essentially merge tactical thinking and analytics? What, how can we use analytics to make players tactically smarter or better at responding to the tactics of the opponents they're likely to, likely to face? What information can you give them? And I, I mean that in as specific of a, of a way as we can muster. Uh, like, literally, what statistics do you think... Maybe you make a good point about... Don't Craig give them the statistics. I mean, that's yeah, really what I think. Yeah, that, uh, I, I agree with you there. But, but the statistics should inform some advice to give them. And may, maybe, the, maybe the statistic is you know, how much time do players need to move over and defend against Nadal's ad serve down the tee. I mean, we don't have those numbers. Hawkeye could probably generate those numbers. But that would be one statistic that would be useful. Just to clarify, it was to defend the ad serve out wide. I may have misstated it. But sorry, go ahead. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The movement was to. What I meant was along the same lines. Like that's the that's the dangerous serve. But you, as soon as you move over, you have to worry about the serve right. down the tee. Right. So, so yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's looking at uh, serve speed and spin to know whether players have a serve in one direction that's particularly dangerous, but a serve in the other direction that's that's relatively weaker that you do, that you have to worry about less than you think. Because players are going to be different in how big a gap there is between those the, the wide serve and the T-serve. So maybe that's one example. Um, and Or maybe it's just knowing, for instance, that, that, a, that someone like Nadal will go to the ad court 90% of the time on break point, something like that. Um, one... Uh, Ryan Harrison is a friend of a friend of mine, I guess, without giving out more personal information than I really can. But um, through our intermediary, I, I I heard a comment of Ryan Harrison's, which was, you spend the first set of matches figuring out what a player's tendency is on break point. Like every, he thinks every player has a um, has a certain serve they'll go to in in those moments, particularly break point down, and. The way it w- this might not be exactly right because this is all secondhand, but the the point was you spend the first first set of the match figuring out what that is, and after that you can take advantage of it. And the obvious follow up to that is like, why not figure that out before the first set? I mean, that person is not playing the first match of their life, not even the first pro match of their life, probably not the first match of that week. So maybe it's something as basic as that, just being able to tell a guy this is this is a very basic tactic that you can expect your opponent to use. And to me, when I'm trying to answer this question myself, it's really easy to get bogged down into much more difficult questions, like in a certain three-shot sequence, if you can even go so far as, as isolating a certain three-shot sequence. I mean, what, dire- what direction or what type of shot is a player going to use then? But maybe it can be more simple. It's just knowing like how often a, a player is going to run around their backhand and hit a forehand. When they do, are they going to go inside in or inside out? How often will they be more conservative and, and play a shot down the middle to take some angles away from the opponent? Just, I'm not sure how basic those questions are. I mean, in a way, they're very deep, but I, I can, I'll say they're basic in the sense that they are something that some pretty basic analytics can answer. Um, but I guess that's what I'm after. Like, what, there's, a, there's a lot of... Of, of numbers you could generate that describe players' tendencies in a way that we can expect to be accurate for player X's next match. Which of those numbers can you can you take and, and translate into advice to a player that will be useful? That, that, that's the question I'd love to know the answer to, and I don't expect you or anybody else to have a, a final answer to, but that, 
I promise not to answer. Can I just talk around it for a minute or two? Because I have a couple of thoughts. Yeah, go go around. Okay. So yeah, first of all, I mean, it was. I think it's apt given the sort of talking about talking that we're doing, which I don't. I'm not saying in a dismissive way. I think it, it's useful, as we said, for sort of naming what the issues are and how to how to even name them in the first place. The, the different concepts we're talking about. Uh, that I gave a sort of roundabout answer, and maybe I'm doing it again now. I also, I think, maybe misunderstood the question because the scope of the question is enormous. I mean, if I could answer that question, I guess with an example or two, it wouldn't be enormous. But to, to actually answer it comprehensively would basically be, let's unlock this entire potential of analytics to improve players' chances of winning matches. And, and given you're saying that, you can't do that, Carl? Well, you know, we only have infinite amount of time left on this episode, given where we're at right now in the show notes. Yeah, we've got six hours left to go until we get <laughs> That's right, so we the beat Oscars. the Oscars, exactly. Um, and, you know, it'll be hard to do advanced analytics while also trying to hear what you're saying and, and think of responses to it that make sense. But I'll try, and, and you too. Um, and, and the other thing I want to say sort of in that vein, semi-jokingly, is that you've often said on air and off that one of the motivations for the show is for me to make up some theory that will give you an idea that you can then actually test with data because... Uh, I don't know if I'm better than you at making up theories, but certainly my competitive advantage is there, whereas yours is in the data analysis. So hopefully maybe I've, I've given you some seeds for thought, and then you will indeed comprehensively, maybe in these next six hours while I'm talking, unlock all the secrets. Uh, and I also think you know it's just a, a little bit unfair to people like you and me and some of our listeners because of the age-old problem that you and I have written about and talked about many times of just a lot of the best stats that we would want to be able to do this work are not available to you and I. So there's an incredible repository of stats available that you've helped create uh, with your brainchild of the tennis matching, excuse me, the match charting project. Sorry, sorry to have bungled that because uh, it's such an incredible resource where basically you and like-minded, analytically-minded fans of the game will hand chart matches and as I've said before, it's both an incredible resource, a testament to the powers of crowdsourcing and making data public, and also frustratingly limited because of what it is, because we don't have the Hawkeye data on the speed of shots and and the spin and the location of players, and so it's going to be approximate and it's going to be more prone to error, possibly, I guess we don't know. Um, and also, like once you've done a thousand matches, if you're like, oh shoot, I really wish that we had been charting X, you can't quickly rechart those previous thousand matches. So I think there probably is a lot to unlock in that data. I think there's a lot more to unlock in data that we don't have access to. I think also video is a kind of data itself, even if you're not actively extracting a lot of numbers, I still think I do trust really, really smart tennis brains to extract the equivalent of them just from watching them in an analytical way and maybe writing down some numbers. So this reminds me a little bit of when I wrote an article for 538 about um, the missing Malaysian Airlines plane back in 2014 and about mathematicians who had an idea for an algorithm or more like a technique that could help find the plane faster. And CNN invited me in my only major TV appearance to come talk about the article, not surprising given the subject and the network. And the anchor repeatedly asked me variations of the question, how are you, Carl Bialik, going to find the plane? And I think my answer is, Jeff, I'm not going to find the plane, same as I told the anchor that night, but I will continue to talk about and promote and socialize and amplify and support the efforts of smarter people than me to find the plane or the missing key to tennis analytics. There's no plane here, Carl. I'm sorry. Fuck. It's, okay. That's... I wandered into the wrong green room, I guess. 
yeah that that's the that's the secret that's the the philosophical underpinning there's no of all plane this. there it's a bit disappointing but there is no plane by the um, way i will send you that clip if you want to put in the show notes because it's pretty freaking hilarious okay sounds good uh, this all presumes the existence of show notes, <laughs> which is a bit optimistic when it comes to me putting together a, a post. But sure. The show notes are just existing in Jeff's mind palace. Yeah. Um, we are going to, to wrap up the talk of tactics, and I believe we're going to... For now. I'm sure we'll for, revisit. Yeah, we absolutely will revisit, and we could, as Carl has said a couple times now, we could probably just make this a talking about talking about tactics podcast for many more hours. Uh, we will spare you and that, And watch our I listener think. numbers dwindle. Yes, we're going to go from two to one. To, I mean, we can't watch it dwindle for that long. Look on the bright side. Yeah, fractional um, listenership doesn't mean much, I guess. Fractional listeners. I think that's the stage my wife is at right now. She's oh, she's there. Shrink, Hi. She's a shrinking fractional <laughs> listener. There's no Zeno's uh, ho- paradox here. Hoping to shrink more. Um, okay, so we have a lot more things on our outline for today. We're hitting the one hour mark. Which Yeah, we, should we, we should do these do. as kind of like a speed round? I don't want to actually, okay. we, we, because many of them are deserving of more than that. And okay. judging from our conversation so far, our speed round would be pretty slow itself. Um, we will revisit Indian Wells at length, assuming we can make this happen next week with another episode uh, okay. after the first few days of Indian Wells. Um, two things I want to talk about moderately briefly. The first one is, Carl, I, I know you'll have something to say about this. Indian Wells introduced a big incentive for players to play doubles. I, I believe it's a big cash prize for winning both the singles and the doubles. Um, can, uh, that's actually all I know. So, Carl, can you fill us in on what the details are of that and what your thoughts are? Yeah, you know, I have not dug into it enough yet, and I definitely plan to do more. And I'll also, by the way, be at the tournament for part of the second week and potentially even doing some coverage perhaps for my 30 Love podcast or, or elsewhere and certainly we'll, we'll share some of my thoughts on future episodes if it comes up. But the, the very brief version is that if a man or a woman wins both the singles and doubles title and there's no mixed doubles outside the slam, so we're just talking about a man winning men's singles and men's doubles or a woman winning women's singles and women's doubles and I guess conceivably one could do but we could have a woman do it and a man do it. I think in total in history, it's happened six times in either draw, so it's unlikely it'll happen in both. But anyway, if a man or a woman does that, pulls off the double, they will get a $1 billion, $1 million, it sounded like a billion, $1 million bonus, uh, which, is, which is quite a nice sum given some of the sort of much slower, much lower purses out there, even at big tournaments. And I think it's it's a really cool idea that, also shows you how sort of poorly aligned tennis can be sometimes. Indian Wells has a ton of money, so it makes sense they could try something like this, which I think is a really cool idea for boosting star singles players' participation in doubles and also just how much they care about doubles. Although, ironically, if they're knocked out of the singles draw, normally they might care more about doubles now, and here they've, they've just lost that, that big incentive. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's misaligned in that Indian Wells already had a really strong doubles draw historically partly because of where it is in the calendar and that's a two-week tournament and so it's sort of like how much extra boost can you get when you already were often getting most of the top 10 singles players participating in doubles but anyway I love experimentation as listeners know so I still think this is pretty cool yeah it's it's always good to get more of the top players playing doubles as you point out this is the time when it's needed the least um 
and and you do wonder like some of this i guess there aren't a lot of other bonus incentives to put in the same category but the one that springs to mind is the bonus payout for the u.s open series that if you if you win the to- the most points in the U.S. Open series of, I guess, Washington and Stanford and Cincinnati and a couple other smaller tournaments, then if you also win the U.S. Open, you get another million dollars or whatever. It's more complicated than that, but that's the general idea. And it seems like sponsors want to want to add things to to tennis events that are already a big deal. Like nobody would add an incentive to Atlanta or Houston or something. So, so you end up with these incentives in places where you don't really need them to increase interest. Uh, and that, that is one of the drawbacks here, I think. But sure, yeah, experimentation is good. Giving a million dollars to somebody for playing good doubles, eh, works for me. Um, and you said, Carl, you like experimentation. I'm wondering how you feel about the, the really radical proposal for a new Davis Cup format, which... Again, I don't know a lot of the details. Whenever I try to read an article about it, there's just this loud voice in my head that says, they're ruining Davis Cup. What the hell is this? And I can't pick up any details. But the general idea is no more Davis Cup as we know it. Next year, we'd have this World Cup of Tennis thing hosted that would host, I don't know, 18 countries or something. Um, and I don't know. I, I, I don't even know what it, how much is decided what the format would be exactly. But let's just say matches like what started our conversation today between Zverev and Damonor, uh, they would presumably not happen in this format among many of the other great Davis Cup matches of the past. But of course, there's reasons for it, Carl. Do you think this is a this is an experiment that could pay off? I mean, I guess it could pay off. It it depends a lot, I think, on what unit of payoff we're talking about. I mean, the uh, so for instance. You really have to start, and and uh, I've I've had someone who I'll, I'll thank not by name who has has helped me think more clearly about this. I think you have to start with like what is broken, how do we measure it, how do we track it over time to make such a drastic proposal. I think it's worth being quite deliberate and specific in diagnosing what it is that you think has gotten worse, making sure the data supports it. At least that's a minimum of what should be necessary before assessing whether it's worth going ahead with such a completely radical overhaul. I mean, there, there, there's no real gradual phasing in even with, with assessment, which feels like a wise way to, to do this. So it feels like you would need a bigger crisis than whatever crisis is perceived to exist now in Davis Cup. Uh, yeah, could it work? I guess, again, like, I, it depends what we mean. But if, it, if the unit is, are people more excited about the final because it's, like, happening right after all the other matches and everyone is at the same place? Are they more excited about the final than they normally are? Yeah, maybe, although the fans at the venue probably are less excited because you don't get that incredible home court advantage you normally do. And, you know, there's also this question of, like, will more of the top players participate? Well, maybe, because it's just once a year. Although instead, it could be instead that you get cases where, whereas before a top guy might have participated in one or two out of, you know, maximum four ties in a year, now they just opt out entirely because it's coming at the end of an already long season and there's so much value in recovery and like working on certain techniques and tactics in the off season that they might miss out on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, the reaction I had, and, and I will preface this by saying I certainly do not want to turn my comments in this podcast into just a audio rehash of things I've already said on Twitter for those of you who also follow me there. But I did say earlier tonight that 
this proposal would make a lot more sense to me if it were proposed to replace tennis in the Olympics as opposed to tennis in Davis Cup. Because I think as a once every four years, everyone's all in the same place anyway, team competition uh, that can happen in two weeks, that sounds to me like an Olympic event uh, that fits in really well in a way that's maybe both less awkward and more of a change of pace than the current Olympic tennis format, which is basically just a few very standard single elimination draws in events that we already have at the slams plus a bronze medal match. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And you also wonder if there, like you point out, this is a really massive shift all at once. I mean, you're bas- even if you're keeping the Davis Cup name, if, if you do this, you're essentially ending Davis Cup and starting some Haggerty totally Cup. new thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, after the ITF president, who's uh, who's a baby, this now is. Um, yeah, and which you know we shouldn't just pin on him because there has been incredible pressure from certain quarters, and I think it's an example of how, even though the Anglophone Grand Slam hosting countries of the U.S., U.K., and Australia are not what they once were in terms of tennis power, they still have incredible clout, including in terms of their dominance of a lot of the most prominent media voices and commentators because English is kind of a lingua franca. The the irony of, first of all, using a non-English phrase to mean that and also that I can't pronounce it is not lost on me. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think it's not all on him, although he is kind of a product of that world. But I think he was brought in as a change agent. When you're brought in as a change agent, it's not usually an incentive to come in and look around and study and say, oh, never mind. I said we should change it. Now that I'm on the inside, I realize we shouldn't. Yeah, that that's true, and and yeah, you certainly can't pin it on one guy. You, you do wonder if there would be a way to to do something new with the the round, not round robin, the the early round stages, especially with Davis Cup, because Davis Cup is four weekends over the course of the year compared to Fed Cup being three. So Fed Cup, for instance, at the lower levels is a, a round robin, I believe, with four countries in at every venue. So. It, it's not a, that compelling of a format as is, but if you take that idea of a four-country round robin, it could still be hosted by one of the countries participating. Um, it could eliminate one weekend a year from the Davis Cup calendar, and then you'd still get to keep the semifinals and final, which are, at least to my eyes, are the most compelling part of the event. But what you started out with saying, Carl, is it, it's so important to decide what exactly you're trying to maximize. I would guess that there have been enough discussions within within the ITF that they have a pretty good idea of what they're trying to maximize. The cynical, but like, tell us and sell it to us using that well, d- that data. Sure, you, you you could do that unless the cynical unless you're tennis fan as me is right. And yeah, you're embarrassed that what you're really trying to maximize is sponsor interest or just number of eyeballs on the final. Oh, or well, that, that's like, not nearly as embarrassing as I thought you would say. Those sound like things any business would have an eye on. Well, sure, but I think some one of the things that makes Davis Cup compelling as this traditional thing is that I mean, yeah, eyeballs on the final, fine. That that's not embarrassing. But if if you're maximizing sponsorship dollars for something that is, it's it's not amateur, but it it's one of the aspects of the tennis calendar that has the 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 most air of the amateur era about it. So yeah, the fact that it's sponsored by BNP Paribas makes it obviously it's not amateur. We we all know that federations are paying players to participate, but at the same time, and fans are paying a lot of money to attend and so on. Yeah, I, I, I guess the question is, 
if, if you're, let's just assume for the sake of argument that the brain trust at the ITF is trying to max, maximize sponsorship dollars and that, that's the beginning and end of it, then that still leaves another question, which is how much are you willing to change? Because if you're trying to maximize sponsorship dollars, you probably just do something random with as many members of the big four as you can get to show up, put it in Dubai, and you know, let the people in Dubai do their magic to, to get luxury brands go sponsor it. I mean, it would essentially be Abu Dhabi, like the, the exhibition before the beginning of the year. Um, or Whenever some, you optimize for one thing, like paper clips, you destroy humanity, absolutely. Yeah, excellent, excellent example. So, so how do, do you far, know that that was a reference to, or is that just really off the wall? No, no, no. I, <laughs> you, you I do. I, I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to explain. Than we, oh, yes, sorry. Yeah, I'm sure all of our <laughs> listeners are 100% on board with the paper clips. Um, but yeah, the question is how how far can you push it? And I think we all agree that you can't take the Davis Cup name and stick it on the December 30th Abu Dhabi ex- exhibition <laughs> right. two weeks before the Australian Open. But if and this the, isn't uh, as radical as that. Yes, it isn't. But it's pretty freaking radical. I mean, <laughs> yes. This is this is closer to Labor Cup than mm-hmm. it is to Davis Cup. Mm-hmm. 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 Mm. Or yeah, it's way closer to Labor Cup than I expected any proposal of a fast change would be. And Labor Cup, for those who don't remember, was just an exhibition that debuted last year and was um, Europe versus the world in men's tennis. And this isn't yeah to me this is still pretty far from that. But I I, I take your point. It's a single. It's a single time period, contiguous, and um, all in one place. And, and those are pretty important similarities. I will just say quickly that I, it would be a little unfair to be too hard on an organization that doesn't have that many direct sources of money because it's really the the host um, host nations, tennis federations. God, there's so many mouthfuls in tennis. The host nations, tennis federations that get all the money from the slams that, you know, ITF can't have too many things that are just charities. And, you know, one of the models in the way the slams work is that the slams make a ton of money and that helps fund other tennis initiatives. And you can argue about whether the money is spent optimally, but at least that model does have some logic to it. And Davis Cup probably does need to make some money to cover some other ITF initiatives. Well, that uh, that drags us into another absolute morass of a conversation, <laughs> which is... It, it, from the perspective of the ITF, you make an, an excellent point that the ITF does a lot of important things in tennis. I mean, one of those things is running the whole lower level of, uh, especially women's tennis, which doesn't have a, a challenger tour sponsored by the WTA. Like the ITF runs the entire professional women's game below the WTA tour level and a, an even larger number of men's tournaments, although they are below the challenger level. So the ITF is crucial in the, the running of professional tennis, but at the same time, why? I mean, why do we have the ATP, the WTA, the ITF, which is affiliated with but doesn't get most of the profits from the four biggest tennis tournaments in the world, which, by the way, are what most tennis fans think of as all of tennis. So we have these three organizations that are fighting for relevance when really they can never compete with these four independent things that are loosely affiliated and who knows what they'll do from year to year because they all have their own decision-making bodies and may or may not contribute to the initiatives of the other organizations, which are probably better at looking out for the long-term health of the sport, especially from a global perspective. I think the last paragraph out of my mouth could be the topic for a whole other hour's worth of a podcast. Or a whole new series. I mean, I I will just say, though, that I think we, we arrived at, and you stated very clearly, 
what a mess you get when you have a whole lot of bodies that are supposedly going for the same thing and should be collaborating and growing the sport, instead having competing interests and undermining each other. And what you get is a tennis business and a tennis pot of, of money and, and prestige and, and world awareness that is much smaller than it could be. Yeah, basically you have one guy at BNP Paribas who's <laughs> trying to decide how much money to pay for signs and, and sponsorship positions at all these different unaffiliated tournaments, which must be difficult for that guy. I, I never thought about that. That that, that person could be a woman. A, a, a could it could be a woman? Um, I, and you know, it's it's also. I mean, that, I know that's sort of a joke, but like they're the na- title sponsor for Indian Wells, which we just touched on, and one of the big sources of that tournament's cash. Although obviously Larry Ellison's uh, ownership of it is the other, and and also just fans love it because it is a great event for fans. Uh, and then, you know, they sponsor the BNP Paribas Masters, they do Fed Cup, they do the French Open. I'm sure I'm missing some. And the extent to which tennis, on the one hand, is just a decentralized mess and that that creates all sorts of problems for it. And then on the other hand, that revenue model is so dependent on BNP Paribas believing they're getting a return on investment on the sport, which, you know, wondering how the sausage gets made could just be because one of the top executives really likes tennis and not because of any deep analytics it's a little scary for the sport. Yeah, definitely. So on, on that creepy and disturbing <laughs> note, uh, we'll, we'll wrap this up. I want to assure you all that there's many more topics for our next. I'm surprised know, you're topic. not even squeezing in a little bit of movie criticism, given what all the references we've made to the Oscars. But we can save it. We can I mean, totally no, save no, no, no. Let, let, let's give it five minutes. So I, I didn't watch the Oscars. Because <laughs> I, Jeff. I, I don't know why. Um, I didn't watch the Oscars, because so I'm, I, I'm assuming that did Battle of the Sexes win Best Picture? Um, it would be faster just to say what it didn't win. No, it did not win Best Picture. Okay. It did not win Best Picture. Well, uh, for, for our purposes as tennis podcasters, it was the only movie, well, one of the only two movies of 2017, but the only movie that we both watched so far. Um, yeah, I was going to say, because, I mean, it, usually you could start that sentence by saying it was like the only movie of the past decade that was relevant, but there's just been a spate of tennis movies lately, and I'm behind. Yeah, and and uh, oddly enough, I, I hadn't watched either one, but then uh, on a China Southern flight, I was able to watch both Battle of the Sexes and Borg McEnroe, and assuming the Chinese censorship didn't cut too much out of them, I, I did get to watch both. Uh, we'll skip Borg McEnroe for today because Carl hasn't watched that one yet. But Yeah, and if anyone listening, by the way, knows of a streaming service that legally offers it, please uh, tweet at me and I will hunt it down. Yeah, I think it's just not there yet. I did a little a little hunting, but yeah, give it a few weeks or another month and I think you'll be able to find it. Um, but Battle of the Sexes, uh, I, th- I think we discussed a little bit off the podcast. Uh, we both enjoyed it. We weren't uh, we weren't effusive in our praise exactly. But but Carl, tell me tell me what you liked and, and what you weren't so happy about with Battle of the Sexes. Sure, and I will try to do it quickly because I am conscious we're into the seventy ninth minute. First, I just thought overall, just as a film, putting aside the tennis, it was very good, very well done, and especially well done given the material it was working with. Now. Don't get me wrong, the material, a lot of it is fascinating. And, you know, I'll try not to also repeat myself too much for people who listen to 30 Love, and I'm sure all of you do. And if you don't, check it out. I've done two episodes about Battle of the Sexes, uh, what should I call it, art that's been created in the last year, one being the movie and one being 
a play called Balls that uh, just closed, I think just closed. If it hasn't, I recommend you go watch it in, in New York. It's really inventive and somehow manages to be very similar and very different from the film. And I think both of them really have to struggle against the challenge of the nature of the match itself and the inevitability that that match and the end of that match will be the climax of the film. Uh, I, I guess, Jeff, we can give spoilers of how the match ends up. Is that fair? I think that's fair. Okay, so the match ends with uh, Billie Jean King at age 32? 29? 29, I think, routing Bobby Riggs, who was 55, uh, in straight sets in a best of five, a rare best of five played by a woman, which is a whole separate topic because I, I think we tennis could use more best of five played by women simply because I like women's tennis, want to see more of it, and don't see any reason why women couldn't play matches as long as men do and find there to be sort of an air of sexism around the notion that maybe they can't or shouldn't or don't deserve the court. But anyway, whole, whole other topic. We, sh- we should actually talk about that sometime. That'd be fun. Um, but yeah, so I thought it was, it was really well done. The movie uh, really nailed a lot of the period details. I wasn't alive in that period, but just from seeing footage and so on, uh, really well acted from everything I know about the tennis players depicted, and there are quite a few of them besides King and Riggs, pretty pretty right on in terms of how they looked, how they talked, how they felt. I thought Riggs was was done really well by Steve Carell, and King maybe even better by Emma Stone, and what's probably a tougher part because it's more interior. Uh, and yeah, I think the biggest challenge is that the tennis itself is just not that that interesting because she routes him and also because to the modern eye it will just look really slow I was telling Jeff this before the episode that I figured that they must have slowed down the tennis and their recreation of the match on screen so that people could more closely follow what was happening from shot to shot and then I was reading about the film which is my my typical pattern after I watch a film I want to read everything I can about it if it's a film that engaged me and I found out that they deliberately were not just trying to match the match in general outline but actually choosing specific points and then playing them in terms of every shot and where it went and what kind of spin and where the players were and then I went and watched uh, old clips and they really had I mean it really was slower back then by a degree I hadn't fully appreciated anyway so I just talked for way too long but just one last quick plug for my my show because I did an episode with Don Van Natta who wrote a great ESPN investigative piece about the match which made a pretty credible case that Bobby Riggs was involved with gamblers and actually threw the match to make more money long term than he would have by winning the match because it was a money match and that was a real complication to the narrative that the film skipped and I think the only person ever asked them about it got an answer that was something like yeah, we just thought that would complicate things too much to get into that, which I found disappointing. So do you think that's the etymology of the word rigged, Carl? <laughs> I think uh, when you have a tennis player named Bobby Riggs, who's a real showman and also short on money, what is the name for like the thing that sounds, that is like the its name? Uh, it's, a, it's a favorite of readers of journalism who will love it when a guy named John Weed is covering, you know, marijuana legalization. So anyway, yes, Bobby Riggs rigging the match really writes itself. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree that the tennis is slow. And my my biggest reaction to the tennis itself in the movie what came in relation to Borg Mackinac. So sorry, Carl, and sorry to listeners. I have to give away <laughs> a little bit. I'm not spoiling the movie. Again, it's, you know, it's, a, it, it's historical, so you know who wins. But I don't even have to tell you that. Um, one of my frustrations with Borg McEnroe is 
they show a lot of tennis in the sense that they show players on the court quite a bit, but they never show tennis in the way that at least I'm accustomed to watching it, like just an overhead camera showing the point, watching the point unfold. And one of the most fascinating things about the Borg-McEnor rivalry that is played up quite a bit by the movie is how different they are. And it's this clash of styles, clash of attitudes, clash of everything. Um, which you know gives it the potential to be a great movie. So you you'd think you'd show that on the court, just the typical show don't tell dictum in in all art, and they they have this sort of artsy way of shooting the points, which occasionally you'll see on tennis broadcasts, but rarely where you do close ups of each player when they're hitting the shot. So. It, it, it's very, it, it feels a little stilted, it's very broken up. You don't get the flow of the point the way you do just watching a normal tennis match on, on television as it happens where you, you get to watch the ball every every moment and see how the players move and react to, and all, all those things that make tennis interesting. So I was worried they would do the same thing in Battle of the Sexes, especially because in Battle of the Sexes, it's, it's more about the characters and less about the actual tennis. I mean, Plus the match was boring. Yeah, I mean the climactic match was it, it was boring. Um, the fact that it's a fifty-five-year-old guy playing, like it's it's obviously it's not anywhere near the same level as a Borg McEnroe Wimbledon final. I mean it's it's such a different level. It feels ridiculous to even say that there are different levels, but they, they actually do, as you point out, Carl. It, 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 they show some pretty long points. They give you that overhead angle to watch how uh, how the points play out. They they hired uh, really, really qualified tennis doubles for both players in Vince Spadia and Caitlin Christian. Um, they they worked really hard to get that right, as you point out. And yeah, they I invested think, in tennis consulting to a really impressive degree. And acting. and it pay, and it pays off. I mean, it 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 feels like it feels like the climax of a sports movie, which sounds like a kind of idiotic, truistic thing to say, but. One of the things I one of the things I love about sports movies is because the plot of so many sports movies is so predictable. It there is this feeling of of uh, resolution at the end that you don't get in in other movies. I mean, just the the good the good guys or the good girls win, and that's that's a pleasing thing even when it's a cliche. But in even in totally fictional sports movies, you usually get some you usually get some sports and. After Borg McEnroe, I felt like I got this sort of introspective Scandinavian movie about Borg, <laughs> which is which is interesting, but it's not a sports movie. Like, I, right? I, it's I incidental would, that he was an athlete. It could have been something else, and they could have yeah, treated it similarly. I would rather watch ninety minutes of the Borg McEnroe Wimbledon final, and I think it might have been more dramatic, even in in movie terms. But with Battle of the Sexes. It covered a lot more than just the match, of course. It, it covers, in, in a lot of ways, that whole era and a lot of the big issues happening at that time. But you do get that sense of you, there's the, the overall trajectory of Billie Jean King going through personal issues, having struggles on the court, overcoming them um, in a very personal way, and then having to fight this uh, this monster villain. And overcoming the villain to triumph and, and by the way, triumphing for a greater cause. I mean, that's a that's a great, again, if cliched movie plot, and you get that feeling, and then you get it in part because you watch how it happens, and that's the one way I was really pleasantly surprised by the movie is you feel like you you feel like you are watching that era of tennis play out on the court, which is yeah. cool. 
Yeah, totally agree. And I think that's a nice flip of my point, which is like, given that the match was anticlimactic, they did such a good job of like framing, framing it as an exciting match, making it, you, you said it was like a sports movie. I think it actually felt almost documentary-like in the match itself, which is really an impressive feat. Um, and they managed to make something really exciting out of a, around a climactic match that wasn't close. Um, so yeah, total kudos, definitely recommend it. Uh, and glad that, glad that we did this, by the way, if any listeners have other tennis films that they know about, cause you know, Borg McEnroe didn't have a big presence in the U S yet, at least, uh, definitely let us know. I, I also really want to see, there was a recent HBO real sports about Mark Court. It was only a 15 minute segment. I haven't seen it yet. I did do a 30 love podcast with Mary Carrillo, who was the reporter on that, on that segment. There's just a lot of great tennis content out there besides the actual live tennis content that is available all the time. Uh, one other quick note for you, Jeff, uh, is if you haven't seen it, I'd love to hear your reaction to sometime if you do to Zidane, which do you know the concept of that one? No. So Zidane was a former great French player in soccer, one, one of the all time greats, especially at the World Cup. And while he was at Real, yeah, Real Madrid, um, the film director, and this so this was a documentary, but a very artistic and specific one, uh, chose one particular match, or maybe chose more than one, but not very many, and deployed maybe a dozen cameras in addition to the usual TV cameras, of which there are many at a Real Madrid match, because it's one of the biggest and uh, most popular and wealthiest soccer teams in the world, or any sports team in the world. These cameras were just the Don cameras, and then he cut the footage to basically show you a live match, but always with Zidane in the center of the frame and often zoomed in. And it was a very different way of watching soccer. So it wasn't the same as what you were saying about all the sexes where, you know, it felt like you were watching a tennis match and not not watching something that was incidental to it. But it was in a way, some of the most insight I've ever gotten into soccer as a sport, in addition to it being very artfully done and Zidane being an interesting and expressive character. So. I think I think that it just shows there's many valid and successful approaches you can take to sports films, and I hope we get more tennis films. And 2017 was a good start. Yeah, I hope so too. And I'm I'm gonna wrap this up with one one final thought on that, which is that there haven't been a lot of tennis films, but as you point out, we're getting we're getting a lot more tennis content. And just thinking through the the wide range of of guests you've had on your podcast, Carl, there's. There's a lot of people who do tennis as a sideline, um, artists, writers, journalists. Me included. Uh, all. Y- yeah, you included. Um, I guess you thinking, included in a way. Yeah. Um, the thinking of the, the playwright you mentioned and um, some, some of the other journalists you've talked to who basically earn their money from other things but cover the U.S. Open when they have the chance, that sort of thing. Um, for a lot of people, tennis is a drive-by. And what that means is there, there's a lot of... A really wide range of perspectives out there on tennis in in a very wide range of media, but w- what it also means on the downside is that some of the some of the basic work that other sports or other subjects have just on their history, for instance, isn't there in the way that it is for for the sports that are better covered. I mean, baseball is always my reference point, and it's no sport is better covered historically than baseball, but. Um, but tennis is, I mean, not even close to something that's not even close to the, the league that baseball's in in that regard. 
and in a way it's great that you have those different perspectives but there's also this giant gap that you know I, I watch a movie like that and you say you go and read everything you can about it I, I, I want to read the book or I want to read the I want to read the three books about different aspects of that era of tennis and you can get some of that information but it, it, when I think about tennis history I think of all the books that I would like to read that don't exist um, and that I'm personally never going to be able to write I'm not sure whether anyone's ever going to be able to write that and that's the, the that depresses me a little bit. Um, so the movies are, are, are a nice step in that direction, but there is also this this big gap of media that I'd like to see as well. We are diehard tennis fans. We want more and better tennis content, and I'm sure many of our listeners do too. Uh, can I add a couple of very quick final thoughts? Sure. <laughs> Why not? Um, yeah, I agree with that. I also think it, it ties in well to the last topic in that part of the reason I think that for so many people tennis ends up being a side gig, not the main way they pay their bills, is that there's less money in the sport than there could be because of some of the dysfunction we described before. So, uh, you know, this is not me pleading for a tennis job, but just pointing out that I think there are a lot of people who have a lot to offer the game and would be able to focus on it more and therefore know more about it and just provide more great work about it if just more generally the sport did a better job of monetizing what a just wonderful thing it is and what a great force it is in the world. Uh, I, I also, at risk of pushing even past two and a half hours for the Skype call, and, and if I'd known of the presence of, of Jeff's partner during the call, I, I, I wouldn't have done it, uh, first hour of which was not recorded for the show. Um, I, I just want to say that we, I, I've, said, I've called out a few times in this episode for feedback and ideas and suggestions from listeners, and we really do appreciate it. It's, it's great to hear us, each other, talk to each other, but all of you have a ton to contribute and a lot of things we wouldn't have thought of. And even without having called out for that in the past, and especially recent episodes since we came back from a long hiatus, we got the very accurate and necessary feedback that the audio quality was terrible. And just to give you an idea that we heard you, we both went out and bought pretty good mics so we hope this episode sounds better and i think last week's episode sounded better than the ones before it too so you know any feedback even negative is valued and and we'd like to hear from you yeah definitely um and and my final final thought is just a a word of sympathy to one of our most loyal lit listeners um petter vets who's also a contributor to the occasional contributor to the tennis abstract blog i know he often uses our podcast as listening material during long bike rides so as we Yo, just his legs an hour are so half, tired i i'm afraid he's he might no longer be with us so please please tweet us and let us know you're still alive at the end of this episode um, we need you as one of our three listeners. I mean, I'm exhausted so, just talking this long. I can't imagine biking this long. Yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted just listening to you, Carl. <laughs> Fair uh, enough. <laughs> so thank, thank you, as always, Carl, for joining me uh, on this jumbo episode of the Tennis Abstract podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I actually think even though it's probably our longest, it might also be our best. And we can disagree about that one, too, if you want. Yeah, that'll be the topic of episode 22. <laughs> the <laughs> meta, meta, meta episode. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about talking about talking about tactics. Um, but we'll have a lot to say about Indian Wells. So we look forward to seeing you next week. And thanks for listening to episode 21 of the Tennis Abstract Podcast.